the faithful Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chosen us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to be put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal that promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteed our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possessions, to the praise of glory. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Rick. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We are in the second week. Of looking at this uh, this great book and the second week in chapter one, and I'm going to ask you because of the the greatness and the the depth of this passage, uh, this is one of the passages when you you think about if there was something that uh, was inserted in the Bible that that you would love to have penned uh, for me it would be something uh, this would this passage would be in the running. It is just absolutely rich, and it's uh, beyond imagination and it's mind-boggling. And I think the closer we spiral into this passage and understand what it is that Paul is trying to get through the skulls of those brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus in Ephesus, same way here at, uh, in San Antonio in our own day, uh, the more we find ourselves being melted, melted uh, at the core of where we live when we are able to grasp, and this is part of the language of the prayers of Ephesians, that when we begin to grasp the power of, of this, it melts us. And so I'm going to ask uh, us to bow our heads and join our hearts as we ask God to bless us at this time in our study. Gracious Father, we recognize that we, at times, speak every language under the sun except the language of heaven. We babble the languages of the idols and of hate, of fear, of grief and greed. And yet we seek to hear and speak your language of gracious love. But I fear that Many times we are more stranger in a strange land 
than at home. And so teach us a new tongue to praise and teach us the vocabulary of worship. Help us to learn the grammar of humility as we are reminded that we are the praise, the glory of the Christ. And so, Father, we, we pray for eyes to see and especially for ears to hear. That is our prayer in Christ's name and all the church said. As a as I started uh, the sermon, I mentioned that uh, you know we're looking at Ephesians not only in our Sunday morning classes but also in our sermon time, and we're going to be spending the first three weeks of this of this study in Ephesians just on the first fourteen verses, and the way that we're trying to get our mind around it is by treating them or organizing them or imagining them in our minds like a church hymn, that there are three verses or there there are three lines. And then there's a chorus, the same chorus, after each one of those. The first verse, which we looked at last week, is what the Father has done. Chorus, to the praise of His glory. This morning we're going to be looking at what the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has done. Chorus, to the praise of His glory. The third verse, which we'll look at next week, the 19th, is what the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God has done. And again, the chorus for the final time is to the praise of His glory. Now last week we saw that first verse, what it is that God the Father has accomplished in Christ Jesus. He has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has chosen us, and here's a key phrase to remember, before the creation of the world. He chose us before the creation of the world to be both holy and blameless. And then He has predestined us to adoption as sons. In other words, to use our own language and not necessarily the language of Paul, God has made us rich in blessing. He has chosen us with enthusiasm and he has made us his family. And all of that has to do and is based on what it is that the Son has accomplished. Now, when we get to the beginning of this text, verse 7, one of the things that we notice is that there's this abrupt transition between verses 3 and six through 6 and verses 7 through 12, this, this second verse of this song. We move from before the creation of the world in verse 4 to His blood, that is the cross, in verse 7. I mean, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of years, and Paul does it in a matter of three verses, from before the creation of the world to the cross. How did we get from creation to the cross? In other words, what happened for us to go from before the creation of the world to get to the place where we're talking about the blood of Jesus? And the answer to that is Genesis 1 through 11 is what happened. If you were to recap Genesis 1 through 11, just a couple of basic facts, is that Genesis 1 through 11 forms its, its uh, sort of a, a, a special section within the 50 chapters known as Genesis. And those first 11 chapters are about how things got to the place that they are as the people of Israel were getting ready to go in for the second time into the land of, of Canaan to possess it. 
And what they're being told is not only the identity of God and, and the way they're supposed to think about God and the nature of God and the character of God in all of the universe, but they're also beginning to learn about themselves and the importance of obedience and the importance of trust and the importance of, of following God's uh, word and his commands and following God himself as he, as he has um, uh, illuminated himself and revealed himself to do it in faith. And so those first two chapters of Genesis 1 through 11 is all about God being so powerful and so mighty and so majestic in his strength and wisdom that by his word he created the heavens and the earth, which is, a, 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 in literary terms, is a mirrorism, which means everything between heaven and earth, heaven and earth and everything in between. And he pronounced it good. And he pronounced a blessing over it. But then we get to the third chapter. And Adam and Eve are talked into not trusting God and to not believe that God is a loving God because this is, this is what is revealed when he creates the heavens and the earth. That the heavens and the earth, the place where he has placed man, is a place where they thrive and they flourish and they grow more beautiful and more beautiful and stronger and stronger. But somehow the environment of that love is not enough. The walking with God in the cool of the morning is not enough. And they believe the words of the serpent and they eat of the forbidden fruit. And now, because of that, sin has entered into the world. There are the thorns and the thistles. The good earth is now cursed, thorns and thistles. They are separated from, from God. They're cast out of that garden. And the greatest of that separation is death. And now, Adam and Eve are starting all over again on the east side of Eden. They have these two sons by the name of Cain and Abel. In chapter 4, in chapter 5, you have Lamech. And in both of these cases, the eating of a forbidden piece of fruit, I don't know what the time frame is, but we go from eating a piece of fruit that is forbidden by God. Out of all of the fruit that we could eat, we choose the forbidden fruit. And now, all of a sudden, the world, the reality of the world is a reality of killing. Cain kills Abel. Lamech uh, uh, brags to his wife that this young man that injured him, he killed and soon after that, the earth has become so corrupt that God is grieved and his heart is filled with sorrow. And you have the flood. And God is rebooting creation through Noah out of all of the people on the planet. It is God who sees that Noah is the most righteous man. And it's Noah and his sons and their wives and Noah's wife and the animals that begin the earth again. But it's not long after that that you have the sin of, of Ham against his father Noah and the cursing of Canaan. And not too long after that you have the Tower of, of Babel with man building this tower and building a tower not just to be able to see what's on the horizon but to be able to get into the face of God in, in Genesis chapter 11. And the predominant theme throughout Genesis is that God is sovereign and that God is in control but if there was a secondary predominant theme, it is this, that mankind has a problem it can't escape on its own. I have to reveal uh, a truth about myself. I don't have a high view of human beings. I believe that we have moments of goodness 
And I think that there are lots of moments that we get it right and there is, there is generosity and there is kindness and there is love and there is sacrifice. But Genesis 1-11 through 11 tells me, if anything, that there is a fallenness to human beings. That there is a lostness to human beings. And that problem is twofold. The first is, it, it's our nature. We cannot go without somehow being disobedient to God's Word, to God's will. We cannot go very far in our day without experiencing personally our own subjective fallenness. And then the second problem is this, is that we're, we're just guilty. As guilty of a crime as any human being has been found guilty of a crime in a human court. What we've done is vandalize not only God's good, blessed creation, but we have also vandalized other human beings. And so it's very easy for Paul to talk about the fact that, yes, we were chosen before the creation of the world, but you know why? Speed forward. The cross of Jesus and His blood. Let's think about those two problems that we have. We'll think about the fallen nature first. For those of you who are uh, about my age, uh, 55, maybe older, maybe some a little younger, you remember that on uh, uh, Saturdays, most of the time during the week, there was a show called Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, and you recognize this guy up on the screen. His name is what? Marlon Perkins. One episode, they're in a helicopter. They're in Africa, Central Africa. They're, they're spinning around looking for rhinos. They run into uh, a rhino that's kind of out there in the middle of the savannah. Uh, they begin to kind of film the, from the helicopter this rhino. And the rhino goes, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. A helicopter. And, he, and it, it's something that he wants to get away from, so he starts to run. The helicopter follows the, the, the rhino as he's running to get away from the helicopter. Next thing you know, he looks over his shoulder and he goes straight down into the mud and he's in a bog. Well, the helicopter knows that this is going to be deadly for the rhino if he doesn't get some help. So they call back to the home office. They send a jeep out full of men. They take a three-eighths inch cable from the, uh, from the jeep. They, they're able to lasso the, the, the big horn on the front of this rhino that's stuck in the, in the bog, in, in, the, in the mire, in the mud, and they try to pull the rhino out. And you can imagine what happens. The rhino is beginning to sink, and as he sinks, he becomes more frightened, and the more frightened he becomes, the more he struggles, and the more he struggles, the, the more he sinks, and the more he sinks, the more frightened he gets, and the more frightened he gets, the more he struggles, and the more he struggles, the more he sinks, and the more he sinks, the more he gets frightened, and all of a sudden, this rhino begins to disappear down into this bog. That is a picture of us. It's a metaphor of just how stuck Mankind is in sin, and struggle as we might, we will not free ourselves. And yet, the notion that humans are getting better, and that we're making progress, seems to persist, it seems to continue. You hear people say it all the time. There's a, a tragedy, and you hear things like this. Things like that shouldn't happen anymore. Things like that shouldn't happen anymore. Statements 
like that, I think, do not realize the pervasive and embedded nature of sin as it is realistically described and explained in Genesis 1 through 11. There is enough power in a single dandelion that given time, it can cover the earth in weeds. That's the nature of sin that Jesus teaches us about in Matthew chapter 5. Given time, grudges, anger, become murder. Lusts, given time, become adultery. They become pornography and other kinds of addictions. White lies, innocent enough, but given time, dismantle cultural and relational integrity. And that's why when, when, when Paul writes what he does in verse 7, it, it is like an earthquake going through our souls. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. My friends, humans, of which I think we all belong, are incapable of not being sinners, of not doing sin by their own power. Which means that we are enslaved by sin, that it is sinned to some degree that holds sway over our lives. And that's why we don't just go sliding and skating over that word redemption quickly. When Paul uses the word redemption, he has an image in his mind, and that is us enslaved to sin. And when he uses the word redemption, and when he used it in their time, they knew exactly what he meant. They had been freed up from the power of sin over their lives. The thing that they had not been able to do on their own, all of a sudden, now, because of blood and the cross and faith in what it was that Christ was doing in all of the world and trusting that, they were now ending that enslavement to sin that had held swayed over their lives. It's what, it's what Moses uses. He uses that word five times in the book of Deuteronomy, which you know is getting the people ready to go into the promised land. And he keeps telling them to remember and to remember and to remember that it was God who redeemed Israel. It ended that slavery, that, that brought them to a promised land, brought them to a place of blessing in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, it was because the Lord, what? Loved you. The Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and what? Say it, church. Say it. We redeemed. He broke the shackles off of you. He unhandcuffed you. He set you free from the land of slavery, from the power 
of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We not only need an end to the power of sin in our lives, but we also need to end its, its legal hold on us. And that's why he says we have forgiveness. We have forgiveness. It's an accounting term. It means to erase a debt, to dismiss what it is that you owe, that you rightfully owe. Sin, in other words, is a debt. And it works like this. If you owe me $100 and I see that you cannot pay me back, then I can choose, in an accounting sense, to forgive that debt, to wipe it, to erase it, to erase what it is that you owe me in that $100. And if I do that, you no longer owe me and you no longer have to pay that back that $100. But it is going to cost me to forgive you. It's going to cost me the $100 for that debt to be forgiven. Whenever there is forgiveness, there is always a payment. To forgive means that the one that owes the debt doesn't have to pay it. But what it does mean, if I'm forgiving that debt, you may not have to pay it, but I do. I have to pay the $100. I have to absorb the cost. And to not forgive, even though I recognize that you can't do it, is to make you pay. And that's why it always costs to forgive. And that's why, as we look at the second point, it's important to know that God has a plan and a purpose. In verse 8, he says, With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, which we'll talk about in chapter 3, according to his good pleasure, which he, what? Purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And that is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. There's the language of heaven and earth. To bring it all into unity under Christ. God's will, what He longs to see, is to put back together everything that sin has corrupted and polluted and broken. And it gives God tremendous pleasure to do that. I have a friend in Kansas, in northeast Kansas, who's just a whiz when it comes to all things mechanical with automobiles and welding and things like that. He's one of these guys that, you know, your car's running, he can lay his hand on it and tell you what's wrong with it. He's one of those kinds of guys. And he restored down to the very screws in the upholstery, a 1972 Chevy pickup that looks just like this one up here on the screen. And it took months, and it took months, and it took a lot of money, and it took a lot of time on the internet trying to track down parts, even the exact screws that were needed to make this thing look like it had just rolled off the Chevrolet assembly line. And why in the world would he do that when you can just go out and get another one? I mean, this thing's broken and it's rusting. You know why he put it back together? Because he loved it. And you know what he does with this truck that he loves? He shows it off every time he, dri every time he drives it down the streets and on the highways in northeast Kansas. 
Everything, brothers and sisters, that, that sin tore apart and disunited and drove apart and disordered, God is putting back together. He is unifying all things in heaven and on earth. God is reversing the effects of sin. You know what we are? We always talk about Christianity, which I think is a wrong way to talk about it. We talk about Christianity being so counterculture. That's absolutely rubbish. We are the culture that was from the very beginning. We are the culture that runs counter to the counterculture of sin. And how does God do that? Verse 11. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the what? Plan. The plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the, and there's that word again, purpose of His will. There is a plan that God, as holy, as, as perfectly in His core is holy, cannot ignore sin. That's just not an option. There has to be a plan. How is it that a God who in His essence, by His, his very nature, cannot even abide with sin, how is He going to put it all together? There has to be a plan. But because God is holy, I, I think you would all agree that that would present a little bit of a problem for all of us. It presents a problem for us because we're guilty of that sin. But one of the things that we already have seen about God is that He is also loving. He's holy and He's loving. And it's in that that we have our hope, which takes us all the way back up to verse 7. Our redemption and forgiveness can come through His blood. That is, the blood that was shed by Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb of God without blemish on the cross. And we read just all over the place, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Chapter 4, verse 10 of the same book. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in this great passage, Romans chapter 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith he did this to demonstrate his righteousness his righteousness is an extension of his holiness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. That is, in his holiness, to make sure that every sin that's ever been committed is going to be paid for. That every crime is going to be dealt with. Crimes against a, a, a good and holy creation. So as to be just in His holiness, but also to justify in His love 
those who have faith in Jesus. Every injustice that's ever taken place is going to be addressed because God is just. But human hope, because we're a part of that problem, human hope is that in love, God also chooses to be the justifier of human beings. His holiness is not going to allow sin to exist forever. And it's His love and His grace that He lavishes on us that saves us. And our redemption and our forgiveness comes because there was one who was willing to give up his life in love. And when we get our mind around these verses, it just melts us. And that's why this third part, or this third point, becomes a rea- how it becomes a reality. That Christians become the praise. It's not what we say, it's who we are. He says in verse 12, in order, all of this being true, in order that we, we human beings, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, that we might be for the praise of His glory. Your life transformed by redemption, your sins forgiven is the greatest evidence for the glory of God. You know, over in First uh, Peter chapter 2, you know, this gospel that Peter is, is writing about, he says this thing is so unbelievable and the angels don't really get it, but you know what they want to do? They want to look into it. They, they, they want to peer into it. They want to study it. Because they know in the gospel is the will of God being done. I wonder sometimes when the angels look at my life, do they find anything interesting? Do they, when they look into my life and your life, because of the gospel, can they take their eyes off of our lives? Does our life take the breath of angels away because they see the impact of God's holiness and love in the gospel making the impact to the place where we get it and we're just transformed and revolutionized in the way that we live, not only with Him but with each other? Do the eyes of the angels glisten with joy and happiness when they observe the gospel at work in our lives, that they see when they look at us that every one of us, disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, that we are to the praise of His glory. I want us to worship God. I want us to be so thankful for God that when You know, as Don led us this morning before the communion, that we find our heart rates beginning to rise a little bit and our breath being taken away at just the profound love that is exemplified and demonstrated and manifested in the Son of God on the cross. That our minds are shaken in knowing 
that this is the purpose and the plan of God in Christ Jesus for us who are fallen and guilty and enslaved and shackled and handcuffed to sin. And when it comes to living, man, there are bad days and there are days that are are grievous and there are days that... It seems like you're on a mountaintop and you can, see for a thousand, you can see for a thousand miles in every direction and all of it is beautiful. But in every day in between, including those days, people are able to look at what it is through the power of God is happening to folks like us, everyday folks like us, living in what is a fallen world with such beauty and love and the, the, the uniting of tall people and short people and smart people and not-so-smart people and rich people and not-so-rich people and black people with white people and, and people of... Uh, friends, we're, we're not colorblind. God did not make us colorblind. God made us with eyes to see, and we, as a church, we're to be colorful. We are to represent the gospel that is revolutionizing not only our lives, but the city that we live in and the world in which we find ourselves. And if there's any way this morning that you've not made that transition into all of these blessings that makes you a son and a daughter of God, and you'd like to do so this morning, I'm I'm begging you not to wait any longer, but to to find out the details, to to learn more, to to talk. We're going to have our shepherds down here at the front. We're going to sing another song. Or if there's any way that maybe you just want to track better with the gospel in your life and you just need the prayers and the help and the encouragement of your church family, whatever it is. But that's, Paul talks about it in Philippians 3 about being stars that shine brightly in the night. That's what Paul's trying to do with this passage. To give us hope, not unrealistic or idealistic hope but to help us to understand that the gospel, as he says in Romans 1, is a power of God unto salvation that changes everything. Let's stand and sing. I stand to praise you, but I fall to my knees. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak. Light the fire in my soul, fan the flame, make me whole. Lord, you know where I've been, so light the fire in my heart again. I feel your arms around me as the power of your healing begins. Your spirit moves right through me like a mighty rushing wind. Like the fire in my soul, fan the flame, make me whole. Lord, you know where I've been. So like fire in my heart again. All the church said, Amen.
may be seated. Thank you, Ben. Uh, some prayer requests have come forward this morning. Uh, one that was mentioned in the, uh, the early prayer by Don. Uh, as you know, William and Meg Noah have been expecting uh, a baby uh, and actually thought that it was going to be coming towards the end of the month. The baby was actually